Anyway, but we're going to go and we're going to pick up kind of where we've been. And I know it seems weird because you seem like, okay, we were in this, this um, series on the feasts and the festivals. And then we kind of went into this whole, this signs in the sky. The thing is, is they all do go together. And so we went through the seven festivals here. And we've talked about these ad nauseum. I mean, we've gone through them in depth. We spent some of them, because they were a little bit more involved, we spent days kind of talking about how they're done and then looked at the messianic significance of them the next week. So we've spent several weeks going through this thing. But we've got seven that we know of. We've got the spring holidays with Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And then Pentecost, which technically kind of gets into the summertime, is still considered part of those spring feasts. And we saw Jesus fulfill those. And then we get into the fall holidays. And this is where we're talking about is what we're waiting for. This expectation of Jesus' return, with trumpets being the rapture, day of atonement being in that period of uh, that seven-year tribulation, if you will. And then tabernacles, where Jesus sets up his thousand-year millennial reign here, when there will be peace on earth. And we we read about the child playing by the viper's den and the, uh, the sheep laying with the lion and all of that other stuff. And so we've talked about this, but there's actually two more that they celebrate that are not Levitical. And what that means is that they were not ordained in Leviticus. So there are nine major feasts. One of them I know you've heard of. It's Hanukkah, right? Ah, we know Hanukkah, okay? Um, but the other one that you may not be as familiar with is the Feast of Purim. P-U-R-I-M. Now, this is an important one. We're going to start with this one today. And I'm going to go through a lot of information today, and I'm going to explain it to you. And then I'm going to show you some, some prophetic significance of it, of how this kind of plays out, and show you some cool stuff there at the end. Next week, we're going to get into Hanukkah, because I want to show you there's some misnomers about it, and there's some uh, powerful stuff. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Now, some of the things that we deal with is, with these two is that we have to remember. Those, some people say, okay, now these two were not ordained by God. And technically that would be correct. Because he said, these are the seven that I want you to keep. These two don't have that timetable fulfillment like the other ones that we saw. All right, That Jesus himself is somehow fulfilling a portion of this. But what you're going to see is that while that may be true, that God is still behind this. There was never anything that said, you know, only celebrate these seven, because what you're going to find out with Purim is they are celebrating their existence, the Jewish people, because somebody was trying to wipe them out. Now, this whole thing comes out of the book of Esther. Now, if you remember a year or so ago, as we were going through that last series of the Emmaus Road, we went through each book in the Old Testament and showed where we can find Christ. And we get into Esther. Esther is one of two books as, as named after a woman, the other one being Ruth. Now, Ruth is significant to the Gentile world because it is really, uh, and you cannot understand Revelation 5 without getting this, but she was a Gentile bride married into Israel. That was typically not supposed to happen. But it was Naomi that was there. That was the mother-in-law. The husband dies for, uh, well, for really for all of them, and Naomi's husband and her sons, which is who Ruth was married to. And so through this whole process and these laws that were set up by God, that she is married into the family. And we see this as a picture of the Gentile world coming in to the body of Christ. And we've gone through that. But in Esther, is something even more unique about it. Because Esther never once mentions the name of God. Not one time is God addressed. Now that's interesting because it's like, why is it in the Bible? Ruth and Esther are both read on college campuses. They are read as part because they're from a liturgy standpoint, they are very good. I mean, they're they, they very well written. They've got a powerful story. Too often the story is about love and how love conquers all and we're missing the entire point. But 
when we talk about this, it, they don't talk about God. Prayer's never mentioned. And yet God is behind the scenes the entire time. And that's what I want to show you guys today. So let me give you a quick Reader's Digest version of the book of Esther because I don't, in case you weren't here or you don't remember, um, I don't want you to kind of be lost out in the dark. So here's what basically happens. Is that the Israelites are taken into captivity. They're taken into the area of Persia. The Persian territory is huge and I'll show you a map of that later. Now, when we look at this, they're in captivity. Here's what happens. The Persians loved to party. They were really good at it really good at it. The king throws a party for 180 days. If you're not sure how long that is, that's six months, okay? That may be how long Stan is celebrating last night's victory after, you know, over Ohio State. It may be six months. That's all. They may lose every other game, and that's all he talks about. So who knows? But for six months, now don't think of this as like these calm get-togethers. These are like spring break, you know, down on the beaches of Florida or wherever else they have. I mean, these are benders. These guys are going at it each and every day. And King Ahasuerus, who is the king of this, is putting this thing on. And he brings all of his high people, his high commanders in and all these other things. So that was something he was good at, was partying. And really, I mean, I guess stick with what you're good at. But he was married to a gal named Vashti, V-A-S-H-T-I. She was the queen. And so in his, uh, his infinite wisdom, he wants his wife to come in and he wants her to essentially, if you, it doesn't say this specifically, but when you break it into the Hebrew language of what it's insinuating, wants her to pray around naked so everybody can see how beautiful she is. Nice guy, right? Now, I'm sure people have done stupid stuff drunk, but she, uh, she said no. She was not interested in that. And because of that, she gets banished. He's like, I'm done with you. So they begin this search for this new queen. So what happens in this search is they will bring these women in these young, uh, of course, you're going to marry the king. you got to be good looking. So there's, they said these young, beautiful women, and they bring tons and tons of them in. And these poor women go through this process. They've got a six months of this purification thing that they go through and six months of preparation after that. So, I mean, it's pretty much a year span of getting ready for one date with the king. It's the ultimate series of Bachelor, if there ever was one. Is she going to get the rose? Is she not going to get the rose? You got one shot. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. I mean, you get, it's one and done. Think, I mean, speed dating, all right? It's, it's crazy. So they bring these girls in. Esther is getting prepared, and she, her turn comes up, and the king just falls for it. But what something special about her. Now, you need to remember, Esther is not her Hebrew name. That is the uh, Persian name that was given to her. And that's how we know her, so that's why we call her that. So, she wins the heart. She becomes the queen. Now, even though she's the queen, he had several other brides. In fact, every woman that came in would be considered a concubine or some sort of lesser wife. They didn't just get thrown to the street. They still lived in the palace. Persian kingdom was massive. And so she, uh, she had lived with her cousin Mordecai. Basically, he had been a father to him because her parents had died. He adopted her in. Now, sometimes people will say uncle. Some will say cousin. I don't really care. It's a relative. Both Jewish. And that's the significance here because he tells her to keep her Jewishness quiet because there is no way a Persian king is going to marry a Jewish wife knowingly. That's not going to happen. In fact, his higher-ups would have a major problem with that because they are subservient to them. They are in captivity. They are essentially slaves. Now, not slaves like we think of the American slave trade or the Muslim slave trade that happened you know, at the same time. We are talking about indentured servitude where they lived, they worked, but they paid a high tax to be there. And so it was sort of a 
privilege type thing and the way they looked at that. So they go into all this stuff. She's the queen. She's keeping her mouth shut. Ahasuerus has a right-hand man. He's the king, has a right-hand man. His name is Haman, and Haman hated the Jewish people, absolutely hated them. And he especially hated Mordecai because Mordecai was pretty uh, outspoken and, and spoke his mind. Where a lot of people would kneel before him, Mordecai refused. So Haman wants all the Jews destroyed, so here's what he does. He goes to the king and convinces the king and says, here's what we need to do. All of these Jewish people should bow before you and also me. As I walk through them, they should bow down and they should worship us. The king says, sounds like a good idea to me. And he takes off his signet ring and hands it to him. Now that signet ring is the authority of the land. Because whatever he stamps is sealed by the king. And so it's the same thing as if the king is saying it. And he does this because he knows that many Jews wouldn't because of their religious thing. I mean, think about uh, uh, Daniel, or excuse me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused, right? Same thing. They're not going to do it. Some will, most won't. And also, he knows for a fact that Mordecai will not. It's not going to happen. So... He, this is his plan to destroy all the Jews. Now, I'm going to tell you this part now, and I'm going to expand upon it later. But Haman comes from the lineage of King Agag, who was a Malachite, and it was a person that Saul was supposed to have destroyed. Right? Just keep that in the back of your mind. I'll go into depth on that later. Now, Mordecai refuses to bow. And so, of course, Haman goes and said, hey, they didn't bow. I think we should kill them all. He's king's like, well, whatever you want to do, you know, I mean, that's basically, he's kind of hands off. So they have essentially about one year time from the date of the decree to the date of the execution. It's going to happen on the 13th of Adar. 13th of Adar, I'll put the calendar back up here for you real quick. Is right here. It is the 12th month in the religious calendar. So they decreed it up here in Nisan. At the end of that year, on the 13th of Adar, they are going to kill all the Jews. They're going to wipe them out, all right? So here we've got um, this decree goes out. The Jews, needless to say, are completely freaking out and terrified. And so Mordecai gets word to Esther. Now, Esther has no idea this is going on. She's in the palace, in the kingdom. This is stuff that's taking place outside of the palace. So she doesn't know what's going on. And so Mordecai gets word to her and says, listen, you need to go to the king. Now, you don't just walk into the presence of the king. She has to be invited. Even though she's the queen, she has no right to walk in there. It is punishable by death if you just walk in to the room. And so she kind of prances around back and forth. He's sitting in his throne room, I assume, wherever he's sitting at. And so he sees her walking there, and he loves her. So he says, hey, why don't you come on in here? And she bows before him, and she touches the top of his, his, his mug, his goblet, if you will. And so she says, you know, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What, what do you want? She's like, I want to throw you a party. And he's like, okay, remember, he's good at this. He, he, this, is, like, this is where he rolls. So he wants to throw her, or she wants to throw him a party. He says, and I want Haman to come as well. So Haman gets pretty excited about this. Now Haman loves himself some Haman. Like he's, he's pretty stuck on himself. We've all known that one person in our life that's kind of arrogant and think they're better than everybody else and sometimes refer to themselves in the third person. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those are people you don't want to associate with. But that's essentially where Haman is here. And so she throws this party, just the two of them. And Haman's so proud and everything, and they have a good time. And so the king, when he's all, you know, good and been drinking and, and well-fed and loving life, says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What do you want? She's like, I want to throw you another party tomorrow. He said, okay. And he's like, I want Haman to come. 
So Haman goes home, and he is telling his family, he's like, you're not going to believe this. I was just at this party. It was just me and the king. I was invited by the queen, and guess what? They want me to come back tomorrow. Isn't that awesome? You know, telling his kids, telling his wife, all of that. But in the meantime that evening, he, he's still got this plan, cook it. He builds this huge gallows. It was 70 feet tall for one purpose. He wanted to hang Mordecai on it. He hated Mordecai. And so his head is massive. He's got this thing built. The next thing that happens is they go to this party. And the night before, the king could not sleep. Couldn't sleep. So he asked him to bring him a book. So they bring him a book. And as he's reading this, he realizes that Mordecai had actually thwarted a plan of an assassination. There were two guys that wanted to kill him. And Mordecai caught wind of it, told the authorities. They went to him. But Mordecai was never rewarded for that. You saved the king's life. You're on easy street from there on out. But he was never rewarded for that. So here comes Haman, and Haman says, or the king says, Haman, what would you do for somebody who just means so much to me and saves my life? Now Haman thinks, of course, he's talking about him. Well, I say we put him up on the king's horse, and we give him the king's ring, and we parade him around town so, uh, so everybody can see him. He's like, that's a great idea. You do that. You parade Mordecai around town, okay? So needless to say, Haman wasn't very happy about that, but he does it. So he comes back to the party, everything's good. Now, Esther lets the cat out of the bag, that Haman has made this decree that is going to destroy all the Jews, and guess what? She's Jewish. Now, at this point, the king realizes that he has been taken here, and he's mad. So he orders that Haman be killed, and everybody else that applauded with this, and that Esther as well... Um, kind of command what she wants. And so they went out there and destroyed all the people who were plotting against them. And then she says, I want Haman's ten sons hung from the gallows, the gallows that he built for Mordecai. And they were. And we'll get into that in a little bit. And of course, they live happily ever after, right? Because it's the Jewish people. No, of course not. They still had a bunch of torment to go through. But the bottom line is, is that they were trying to wipe them out. And it looked like everything was in, in place to do so. And yet, somehow, behind the scenes, God intervenes in this entire thing and saves the day once again. This is a picture that I want you to see. Even though God's not mentioned, His providence is still there. Okay? So, now that we've kind of got that story, this is where that whole feast comes. Because Purim is celebrating the fact that they were supposed to be destroyed, and they were not. So I'm going to give you a little bit of information about what Purim is, and then we're going to get into some interesting stuff. So there are three basic names that comes with this feast, okay? The most common one is the Feast of Purim. Now, this comes, and I'm going to show you this here in a minute. This comes from the meaning of the word lots, all right? Esther chapter 9, verse 23, so the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, referring to this feast, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamada, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. So, pur is the Persian name for lots, P-U-R. So what basically was kind of like rolling the dice. That's the analogy that we would use. They would see what day comes up when they would cast lights. Lots. Men of God did this. Of course, men who weren't following Yahweh did the exact same thing. But this is how they would make these decisions. And so the I am in Purim means, makes it plural. Remember I've told you, and I told you a long time ago, that like how we add an apostrophe S or an S on the end of something that would pluralize a word. For Hebrew, you add I am. So cherub is an angel. Cherubim means multiple angels. That makes sense? So pure is lot, 
Purim means lots. Okay? That's what's happening here. So it is called the Feast of Purim or the Feast of Lots. The other name that is given is Mordecai's Day. Because in Jewish writings, early Jewish writings, really, and it was between the two testaments that this was put out, but in the, like in 2 Maccabees and other places, it's given this name because it's actually Mordecai who starts this feast. He inaugurates it with his letters. We just read that a little bit, that the letters that Mordecai had sent out, they were decided to follow. That You're going to see here in a minute that Esther as well did the same thing, which gives it the queen's authority. But Mordecai is really the central figure of the book of Esther. Not so much Esther. She is the queen, but Mordecai is on every page. Okay? The other name that is given is Id el Sukar. Okay? I D E L S U K A R. Now, this is an Arabic word, and it means the sweet festival. And so during the Turkish period, which is run from the, like the 1500s to the early 1900s, when the Ottoman Empire was really in power, um, this was a name given to it by the Arabs because the Jews, it was a custom that they did, would give like sugar candies to Muslims. They would go around there and they would hand them to them. Now, the one thing that's interesting about that is that think about what the whole point of this is. We're celebrating the, the day that the enemy of God failed in its attempt to destroy the Jewish people. All right. What is Muslim? They are attempting to destroy the Jewish people. They are literally the enemy of God. Most likely, although Muslim itself was not in place, it did not exist because Muhammad did not exist at this time, that is the spirit behind him. You could trace this thing all the way back to Esau, okay? So we'll see that here in a little bit. But that's the thing. They would go and they give these to essentially the enemy of God. They are celebrating the day of which they could not be destroyed. So those are the three names. Now, here's where we see this. It's kind of towards the end of, of Esther's. In chapter 9, we read a portion of this, but I'm going to read you the rest of it, of what they're doing. So in Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 17, it says, This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, which is what I showed you. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th day and on the 15th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in, in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things, we read this part, and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Now you can kind of see some of the stuff I told you with the names why they're doing this and he's telling us exactly right here. Verse 23, so the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman the son of Hamathah the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and a cast pure, per, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pure. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instruction and according to the prescribed time that 
these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. The queen, then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, uh, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm his second, the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm that these days appear at their appointed time. That appointed time there is that same word Moedim that we've been looking at. As Mordecai the Jew to the queen, and Queen Esther had prescribed for them as they decreed for themselves and the descendants concerning matters of their feet, fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Now, I know that was a mouthful. I'm going to go through and kind of explain these bits and pieces. But this is, I mean, imagine, if you will, is that if somebody was trying to wipe out the entire nation or an entire body of people, and something happens and you survive it, I'd say it's a day to celebrate. I mean, we celebrate the 4th of July for a reason. It was the day we became a country. We separated from Great Britain. Why do we celebrate it? Because it changed everything for us as a nation. That's essentially what's happening here. Not necessarily a decree from God, but a decree that they have decided that they are going to celebrate what's going on. So, here's what I want to show you. is that It says that outside the city of Shushan, this feast was observed on the 13th day of the month of Adar. So they would look at it there, and then it would get into the 14th and 15th. This was always done. They would rest on that 15th day. They would, it was basically a Sabbath to them, if you will. Now... What was done in Shushan? And I want to show you this map so you get an idea of the territory that we're talking about. This is the Persian Empire. It is not small. This is a huge amount of land. For you, can you imagine? Now, today's technology would allow us very easily to handle something like this. But back then, you know how they got word from one province to the next? Some dude running or a guy on a horse. I mean... It, it took forever. So they had actually taken up parts of Egypt. Right in here is Damascus and Jerusalem. So we see the nation of Israel is in this because it had been taken into captivity. Then you get into all of these other places. But Sushan, or Shushan, however you say that, your Bible may say Susa, okay, it's the same, is the capital. We see Babylon here. We know Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. We see we, this is the territory that we're familiar with. So this is what is going on. It is a massive, massive territory. So this is all taking place right here. Now, what it doesn't tell you, and this is something I want you to understand, is that at this time, when this whole thing is going on, is the same time that Ezra and Nehemiah are over here rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. It is the exact same time frame. Why is that significant? Because it didn't just affect the Jews here. It affected the Jews everywhere, right? So would it affect them? Would they have been wiped out? Absolutely. Remember how much trouble, if you remember back when we've talked about Ezra and Nehemiah and how much trouble that they were given uh, by outsiders trying to keep them from doing what they had the right to do by the king's decree, by Cyrus, to go and do that is part of the reason because we are in that same time frame. In other words, if Haman's plot happens, then the temple is never rebuilt, the wall is never rebuilt, and Jerusalem and the nation of Israel is no longer in existence today. This is how significant this is. This isn't just the, the few that are here. We're talking this entire, if you were a Jew and you lived anywhere inside of this kingdom, you were done. 
That's what was going to happen. We're talking about wiping out a body of people. So this is why they are celebrating. If you were not understanding it, this was, Esther makes it sound kind of cute. Oh, we'll wipe out all the Jews. 127 provinces are inside that map. I mean, it's a lot of space here. So it explains why they're doing this. And, and there's, there's several different titles. It's a day of gladness because it's the contrast of the day of sorrow. It's a day of feasting in contrast to the day of fasting, which Esther did. Three days she fasted before she went to the king. The third thing is called, it's called a good day in the contrast to the morning. And fourth, it was saying it was they're sending portions to one another because one of the things that was in the decree of Haman is that when you kill the Jews, you are welcome to take whatever possessions they had. So not only were they going to be killed, but everything that they had ever worked for was going to be taken away from them. So, I mean, again, that is why this giving of gifts and this time frame is all there. They are celebrating the opposite, the antithesis of what Haman's plot was going to be. So, these are the letters of Mordecai that were written in verses 20 through 22. And then you have Esther uh, also writing a letter later on. But they were to keep this feast, everybody. In observance to this, they were to keep this feast. Now, he's not only writing as a Jewish man, but he is given the ring of the king. The signet ring is given to Mordecai. So just like he gave Haman authority, it also gives Mordecai authority. So when he is declaring something, he is doing it with the king's blessing. So we're telling them that they should celebrate this as if King Ahasuerus himself is saying, you should celebrate this. And that means something when you are in the position that they are in. So it's going to be observed every year. It's going to start on the 14th of Adar. And he spells out very specifically of what they're going to do. They're going to feast. They're going to be glad. They're going to be party. Sometimes you'll see that, uh, today that they wear masks as they're doing it. Because it's like you were hiding your identity of a Jewishness just like Esther had done. Things like that. Stuff that is going on. So uh, kind of an interesting uh, little side note there. So they would observe this. Now, the first observance of this, when they first, it was somewhat spontaneous. And, and well, it should be. You know, they, they just survived something that shouldn't have happened. I mean, they, they, they just throw us lavish, crazy party, all because, hey, we're not dead. Let's, let's party about this. Let's, let's celebrate this. And this is a good thing. And so it was spontaneous, but now they're committing themselves to every single year that this is going to happen. And so when it gets into the naming of the feast, and we talked about this, the names of, of the lot and all of that. And so when we get into all of that we're seeing here, that you've got Esther writing letters, you've got uh, Mordecai writing letters, you've got all these people writing letters saying this is what you should do. You've got Mordecai with the authority of the king. You've got the queen herself who is now risen up. I mean, she was the top wife, if you will, of Ahasuerus, and she's a Jew. These are all things that do not happen outside of some providence of God that is going on. And so the first thing that happens when they begin this, when we look at this, is that the observation that's outside of Shushan took place on the 14th day of Adar. The stuff that took place in Shushan was on the 15th day, so it's a two-day feast. The third thing is that it is going to set up later with all these other Jewish observances. So in the villages and the all unwalled towns, they celebrate on the 14th day of the month. And inside the main city and then the walled cities, the ones that are protected, it is on the 15th day of the month. And then there are five elements that they use to observe this. And we talked about this, but they feast instead of fast. I mean, this is a joyous time. They are glad instead of sad. It's considered a good day instead of a day of mourning. And they are giving portions of their stuff. They are very generous in what they're doing because they were going to have everything taken from them. And so, so ultimately, they'll give uh, gifts to the poor. 
And so everything here was based off the actions of Haman. We watch God intervene, and then we get to the point where we see, okay, it's complete reversal. All right? So what messianic implications are we talking about here? Remember, all these feasts were always pointing to Christ. Well, we can't sit here and say, all right, look at this. This is specifically pointing to Jesus himself being a fulfillment. Remember, this was not commanded by God to do. This was commanded by them to do. So there's no direct reference to anything messianic specifically. But I want to show you something. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, so this is early on, Abram is not Abraham. He's calling Abram out of his country. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This here is the basic principles of the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant that God made on behalf of Abraham, saying, I am going to make you a great nation. What nation is that? It is the nation of Israel. He was the first Jew, if you will. And out of that, all the nations of the world will be blessed because of you. This is the lineage of which Jesus himself comes out of, the Messiah. This is the messianic implication. But he says something significant. I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Well, guess what Haman did? He cursed them. He cursed them to death. And some divine intervention, you see a complete reversal of that. And so there is this principle here in this Abrahamic covenant that the Jews will survive all the way through. There will always be a remnant. Study the rest of the Old Testament. There is always a promise of a remnant that will return to the land. Always. That even when they were being judged by God because of their disobedience to the Mosaic covenant, a remnant always survived. And that is significant. Because we see that today. And we have seen several things take place throughout history in attempts to wipe out the Jewish people. So here's what I want to do. I've told you I want to give you the information of it. Now I want to show you some significance and how this is somewhat prophetic. And how we look at this. Because on Wednesday night, we've been talking about the book of Revelation. And getting into the, the different details about the end times. And even with the different things that we talked about with the signs in the sky and, and, and whatnot. Is that we're looking at the return of Jesus himself. Right? We've been trying to see different patterns that kind of play out. Now here's what I want to show you. I'm going to show you four people. Three of which we've discussed briefly. Now these dates are not spot on. I did it because it's just easier math. Okay? Because 2000 B.C. is more like 1850 B.C. And here instead of 500 B.C. it's like 430 and some change. I like simple numbers. I don't know about you. I went to public school. So we've got four people that we're going to talk about here. Esau, Amalek, King Saul, and of course Mordecai. Now this may seem weird. It may not make a lot of sense like what these four things have to connect, but I'm going to show you a connection all the way up to that point in time. Now, we know the story of Esau. You've got Esau and Jacob. Jacob will become Israel. God will change his name, right? He was kind of a scoundrel, but Jacob is the one who blesses the sons of Joseph, and that is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau sold his birthright. He gave it up to Jacob. Like I said, Jacob was kind of a scoundrel. Esau was a hunter. And he was known for his hunting. And, they, and some make connections to Nimrod because he was known as a great hunter. I don't know if that's necessarily anything there. But Esau gets ticked off and grows a hatred for Jacob. Because imagine, I mean, if you've ever been, when you, if you've ever had somebody pass away in your life and there is an estate and there is a will, you will watch people fight over the stupidest 
of things. Because it's that, that they feel like this entitlement to this birthright. Okay? And they're like, well, you didn't take care of grandma, or you didn't do this, and so I should get more. And It's complete nonsense. I have literally watched family split because there was a man who died who didn't have a whole lot, and he left each of his four children 50 bucks. Okay? And one of the sisters contested that $50. And they never really spoke again. It completely ruined the relationship. So, I mean, imagine if you will, we're not talking, we're, we're talking about a very wealthy family with lots of land and things like that. This is given over to Jacob because he kind of uh, messes around and, and he hoses Esau, essentially what he does. He's a scoundrel. But now let's look at this in Genesis chapter 36, dealing with Esau. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Remember that. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Okay? Israelites are not supposed to marry outside People. Now, the, the, the law is not set up here, but there was still a practice here. Canaan will be the land of which God promises to the Israelites. It says, Adah, Adah the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Ahalabimah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hevite, and Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nabajah. Now, Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimeth bore Ruel, and Ahalabimah. That gal bore Jewish, Jewish, I can't say these names, Jalem and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods, which he gained from the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Why did he do that? He don't like Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's son, Aliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Ruel, the son of Beshemeth, and wife of Esau. And then the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Kenas. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. There's a hatred between Jacob and Esau. They're in the same area. The land cannot support all of them because they're doing okay. So he's going to pack up and go. But then it goes through all these kids and all these things. Now, I've said this before. I know the genealogies are boring reading. It's not inspirational. It's not like, oh, boy, that meant something to me. But there's always information in there that make things fit. It's kind of like a puzzle you're putting together. That bore to him was a son named Amalek. Now, as I said before, Jacob later is going to have his name changed to Israel. He's the father of Joseph, all that stuff. But let me show you on this map where they went. Now, they come down here to Edom. Canaan land was all up in here. They separate. They come down here to Edom. Petra is a name that you would be familiar with. Okay? Mount Seir is in here. So he takes over a whole bunch of tribes. The Edomites are the enemies of the Israelites. You have a family squabble going on, and this is where it comes from, because Esau is Edom. It is one and the same. So from this, he's born a son named Amalek. Do you think Amalek is going to like the people of Israel, Jacob's sons? No, of course not. He is born into a hatred for the Jews. I mean, this is a stupid analogy in all, all seriousness, but look at, at families in football, right? Like, like you are born to cheer for a team, and if you cheer for the wrong team, you may disown them. 
I mean, Paul allowed his daughter to marry an Iowa fan. That is a man of God because he did not let the enemy stop love, right? Good man, Paul. Some families wouldn't do that. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So think about the Hatfields and the McCoy. You've got this hatred that are going on. And so Amalek, from his very existence, is founded on the hatred for the offspring of Jacob. They hate each other. Now, the spirit of Amalek, if you will, and I'm going to put it that way because I want you to see this, is complete hatred for the Jews. They don't like each other. Now, Amalek, it gets in trouble with God because when the Israelites are fleeing Egypt, they are crossing across, getting over to where God was taking them, and he comes in behind and he attacks them. They were not on his land, and he attacks them from behind. He doesn't even attack them head on. He sneaks up behind them. You get some people that are tired and weary, and he starts trying to kill them. So there's no reason for this to happen. And God says something in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says this, verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, this is hundreds of years later that this is taking place. But the offspring of Esau is causing a problem. Now, let's look at these names again. Maybe. There we go. We've dealt with Esau. He has Amalek. Amalek has the same hatred for the Jews that Esau had. Okay? And we watch it. And God just says, I will judge Amalek, who would be also known as the Amalekites. All right? Well, then we get over several hundred years later to King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, and camel and donkey. Why are they being destroyed? Why is he telling King Saul to go and attack them and wipe them out completely? He's saying leave nothing behind. He tells him do not take anything. You leave it all there, you wipe these people out. We're going back to the time when they were in the Exodus. So he is bringing that judgment. Hundreds of years later, he is going to wipe out the nation of the Amalekites, who comes from Amalek, who was the son of Esau. Now, here's what Saul does. Verse 15, the same chapter. And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. So they went out there and did this and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God and Gilgal. Now, here's the thing. What did God tell them to do? Wipe out everybody. Everything, leave, take nothing. Leave it all there. What did they do? They wiped out some, they took the king, and he says, the people plundered. These are your people, God. Now, he's the king. 
He's in charge. They took it. But don't worry, God, we were going to sacrifice it to you. Yeah, I bet. It's like, you know, your kid gets caught grabbing a cookie out of the, the cookie jar, not supposed to, but, but I was getting it for you. Right. I'll get my own cookie. So, I mean, that's essentially what it is. So Saul spared the king, and they plundered the things of the Amalekites. Now, who was the name of the king? It was King Agag. It was an Amalekite. Now, when we look at this next guy, and Mordecai, here we are, hundreds of years later, we're getting into that, you know, I'm, I'm putting a 500-year window, but it's there about. Watch what it says in Esther 3 and verse 1. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Amada, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Haman is the offspring of King Agag, who was spared by Saul. The enemy of the Israelites during this time is only in existence because Saul did not obey the voice of God. Well, how about the hero? Mordecai, that's who we're talking about. We'll look at Esther chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamin, who is a Shemai, Shimi, however you say that. I'll say Shimi, it sounds better. Who is Shimi? He's the son of this guy. Well, let's, we've got to go back because we've got to go back to the time of David. So remember, you got Saul, then David takes over because Saul did not obey. So David is anointed king. Now he's fleeing from his son Absalom. His son tries to create a coup and take over the kingdom. whole bunch of stuff behind that. Bottom line is David is taking off. They are fleeing. And on their way, this guy named Shemai comes out and starts cursing the king. He's cursing. He's telling him how horrible it is. You know why he's doing that? Because he is from the lineage of Saul. Saul was the king. He was the one that the people chose. God chose David, the people chose Saul. So therefore, he is, he is cursing him and saying, you're not this, you're not that, all of this other thing. And of course, when you curse the king, what happens to you? You get killed. And David's mighty men, he says, hey, you want us to go over there and kill him for he's cursing God's anointed? And David said, no, we're not going to do that. Have mercy on him. Now, later on, after Absalom's death, he's killed in battle and whatnot. Of course, David is mourning this because his son was killed. They start heading back to Jerusalem. They're going to take over the, the kingdom again. And watch what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 19. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me. Or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord, the king, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord, the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, answered and said, Shall not Shemai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. And David said, What have I to do with you, the sons of Zeruah? that you should be adversaries to me today. Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king swore to him. So think about this for a minute. Haman is in existence because Saul allowed Agag to live. Shimei is in existence because David took mercy upon him and because of that we have Mordecai you have the two people in the story in existence because of a good king and a bad king the decisions of the king all right that's important understanding that but here's where it gets interesting and where it gets prophetic and this is what I wanted to show you today and Esther chapter 9 verse 11 says on that day the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king 
And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men. It's Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. All right? So he's killed all his sons. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done. And then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's creed, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. Now this is bizarre, because they've already killed the ten sons. All right? So why on earth would you want them hanged anyway? Well, it's out of this event where the Feast of Purim comes. And the bottom line here is we've got God's deliverance of his people from the enemies who are trying to wipe them off the map. Now, think to our time. Does that sound like a familiar story? Like, did we fight in a war dealing with that very thing? Yes, we did. It's called World War II. There was the enemies of God who were trying to wipe off the Jews. They wanted them gone. Adolf Hitler. We, you guys know what I'm talking about here. All right? Now, I bet if we were able to trace his lineage, I'll bet we could trace it all the way back to Amalek and Esau and all these other guys. I bet we could. But be that as it may, if, if that is doable, it's beyond my abilities. Let's put it that way. But I want to show you something, and I want you to look at this scroll. This is a picture out of the uh, scroll of Esther. Okay? So remember, these things are written in scrolls. This is called the Megillot Esther. Now, Esther's name means concealed, all right? But you see here in, in, in verses 7, 8, and 9, and what happens is you've got normal writing, and then it gets really big. And these names on that scroll are very large in comparison to the rest of the letters. But then, inside of these large names, you've got these three letters here that are significantly smaller. Now, a man named Nachmanides, uh, he said that when you're reading any kind of scroll in the Tanakh, and you get to a change like that, whether it gets bigger, it gets smaller, it means that something is hidden. There is something in here that's hidden. And if you examine this list through it, these are the names of Haman's ten sons. That's what these words are. Now, we've got three letters here. As you can see, them, they're the red ones, all right? You've got the Tav, you've got the Shin, and you've got the Zayan, if you will. And then, of course, there's a Vav, which gets a little bit larger. That's the fourth part of that. But the Tav, the Shin, and the Zayan are written smaller. Now, remember, we talked about when we get into the, the numerical system. And remember, in the Hebrew mind, they think prophecy as pattern, the already but not yet. You begin to see a, a prophecy and a fulfillment and a fulfillment and a fulfillment. In our mindset, we think of prophecy, fulfillment, it's done. That's not how they think. And so what you see here is that in these 10 letters, if you add the numbers inside of that numerical system, every letter has a number. The three numbers come up to 707. And when you put these things together, it would put a, a, a 6 or the 6th century, it comes up with the number 5707. If you added these things up, that's the numbers that would come up. 5707 in the Hebrew calendar is 1946 and our calendar. Okay, now that's a big deal because in 1946, what happened? There were 10 of Adolf Hitler's right-hand men that were hanged for war crimes. How many of Haman's sons were there? 10. How many of Adolf Hitler's uh, murderous guys were there? 
There were 10. There was actually 11, but one of them killed himself the night before this were happened. So these guys are executed for their crimes. You see these patterns, okay? Fulfillment and pattern. Now, in October 28, 1946, there was a Newsweek magazine that came up. I've got the cover of it here. Uh, happy looking fellow there. Um, but it was in their foreign affairs section on this. They ran a story on this hanging, all right? And the last paragraph describes the death of a guy named Julius Stryker. And it, it says, only Julius Stryker went without dignity. So in other words, everybody else walked up calm, but not this guy. He had to be pushed across the floor. He said he was freaking out. He was screaming at the top of his lungs. He's yelling, Hail Hitler. And as he's getting up to the step, he, this is what he yells. He says, I, and now I go to God. And he stared at the witness facing the gallows and shouted him, Purim Fest 1946. This is what he's yelling. Okay? Now, Purim Fest 1946, he obviously grasped some significance to the event and the triumph of Purim, which is Esther. Basically what we have here is that you have a story of God intervening for the Jewish people, saving a remnant in the time of Esther during the Babylonian and Persian captivities. And we saw it again in our own lifetime. And this guy made a connection to it, where most of us have missed it. The spirit of Amalek, in my opinion, is the same spirit of the Antichrist. And we have seen them throughout history because they have a hatred for the things of God and God's people. The Israelites are the chosen people of God. So when people celebrate Purim today, they equate Hitler with Amalek and with Haman. That's how they celebrate it. You guys see that? You guys see how that works? You see how God's word is incredibly powerful. And these feasts are not without significance. Because when a Jewish person reads this, what they read is that God still has his hand on our nation and God is not done with us yet. It is arrogant for any Bible-believing Christian to think somehow that the church has replaced Israel, somehow that Christianity was the next step in the evolution of the Jewish world, and so therefore they're done, God's done with them. Now it's all about us. That is not the case. The reason the all about us here goes back to the promise given to Abraham that he'll be the father of many nations, and that because of the rejection of their Messiah, that God opened it up for you and I, and it's because of them that you and I are standing here right now in right relationship with God. And that is why we should constantly pray for the nation of Israel. It's getting ugly over there. We should be praying for them right now of what God's going to do. I saw a video not long ago of, it was around the territory of Israel, and there was people trying to come in and attack at one of their fences, and you see this dust storm blow up but there wasn't a single, there wasn't wind blowing on this side of the fence where Israel was, but you couldn't see 10 feet in front of you on the other side. How does that happen? Oh, the natural patterns of wind, you know, it's got to stop somewhere, right? Come on. And even there was an article in a Palestinian newspaper not long ago is that they keep trying to send missiles, but it says they're misdirecting the missiles. And they keep flying off pattern where they're not supposed to be. They have no explanation for it. Now, it could be that they're making them in somebody's basement. That might have something to do with it. I don't know. But the bottom line is this, is God's hand is still on the nation of Israel. And he has laid this stuff out from beginning to end. Why is that significant to us? Because there's a lot of promises to the church. A lot of promises. 
And if we can see the promises fulfilled to the nation of Israel, then that should give us hope that, God, if you said this, then you meant it. And if you meant it, that means I can trust in it. And if I can trust in it, then I know that your word is true. And it will never return void. Amen? God is good. Amen?